The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. As we are called to be the church that belongs to Seattle, the church of Seattle, the question, will Seattle be different because you and I were placed here at this time to serve Jesus Christ? Will it be different? I suggest to you that it will be different if we learn to live passionate lives for Jesus Christ. There are two ways to live. We can live protective lives or passionate lives. I have been working for many years with college students, and there's that moment of truth come uh, senior year when you realize the uh, flight path that had been uh, programmed for you has just come to an end. And now it's time to uh, launch into something new. And Many juniors and seniors really struggle with this moment. And what I find is oftentimes there are three careers that come to mind at that point. Law, medicine, and investment banking. <laughs> and I ask students, well, are you passionate about that? Not really, to be honest, uh, in many cases. And, well, why those three? Well, it just seems like it's kind of a program. Part of it is that we have trouble imagining the diversity of jobs. You've, after you've been in the workforce for a long time, you realize there are a lot of other jobs that you just haven't thought about. But a lot of it is we're, our dream is really for security. We're trying to protect our future. And we think that those, um, that those three and a few others will guarantee us a certain level of safety in life. I don't know if you caught Ellen Goodman's column in the Seattle Times uh, this week. She says that in 2007, a survey was done of Harvard's graduating class showing that 58% of men and 43% of women were going into finance and consulting. Good timing, Harvard, you know. (laughs) And then uh, Barack Obama uh, gave a, a commencement address, apparently, in which he spoke about the risks of the liberal arts university becoming just a corporate pipeline. He says that uh, this path betrays a poverty of ambition. Drew Faust, the president of Harvard University, as she counsels with students, she says, do what you love. If you don't pursue what you think will be most meaningful, you will regret it. Life is long. There is always time for plan B, but don't begin with it. What is it? that attracts us to the protective life rather than the passionate life. But Jesus presents these two options to us. And he says these are two lives that are separated by something so small as a door. A door on which Jesus wants to knock uh, tonight. I mean, excuse me, this morning. And, And Jesus speaks to them in this text that we'll read in a moment of being earnest. You'll see that word, being earnest. That same word is the word for jealousy or for passion. Be passionate, he says. So with that, let's stand and read this uh, text together. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. You'll find that on the Pew Bible in page 996. Revelations 3, verses 14 through 22. And if you're visiting, uh, as we read, at the end I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. And to the church, the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe yourself and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in them, for the time is near. Please be seated. Well, there are two ways to live, the protective life and the passionate life. Each of these two ways have a a statement of mission or purpose, a credo. We see the credo for the protective life here in verse 17. The Laodiceans say, I need nothing. This claim fits as well on the lips of somebody who is wealthy as it does on the the lips of somebody who is poor. The wealthy person thinks they need nothing. The poor person thinks that their welfare will be found in getting to the place where they need nothing. The difference is the same. But if we read into that verse, we see that there is a frightening process. There is a three-step process here to getting to that credo. First step is to say, I am rich. The second is to say, I have prospered. And then this breathless claim, I need nothing. Do you see the progression? First of all, the sense of, wow, I'm rich. And then to misinterpret the agency, the cause of that wealth as owning itself to my own efforts to say, well, I have made myself rich. I have prospered. And then finally, to conclude from that interpretation of our wealth, that therefore I need nothing. This is a dangerous dynamic. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 8, we see that Moses warns God's people as they're about to go into the promised land. They're about to claim God's blessing. They're going to be made rich in that land. Moses says, be very careful. Remember what you learned in the wilderness, in the time of testing. He says that the Lord humbled you by letting you hunger and by feeding you with manna. In order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The clothes that were on your back didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell these 40 years. Know that in your heart that as a parent disciplines a child, so the Lord, your God, disciplines you. It's not to say that the Lord punishes us, 
but that the Lord trains us. He instructs us. And he says, remember in the wilderness, this 40 years, this was sort of the, the, the classroom in which you learned to trust God's promise, his word. It's greater than your circumstances. And through this, this uh, dilemma, this experience of, of deprivation, of being hungry, and then of provision, of God's providing, you learn that you lived in God's care. But be careful because now that you enter into this season of blessing in your life, he says, you're, uh, you'll, you're, you'll have fine houses, you'll eat your fill, your herds and flock will multiply, your silver and gold will multiply. But when this happens, do not exalt yourself. Do not forget the Lord, he says. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. If the protective credo is, I need nothing, the passionate credo is, I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus. We can do that, and the Laodiceans are invited to do that because of who Jesus Christ is. And he's presented to us at the very beginning of this message as the one who was at the origin of creation. He is at your beginning. He is the one who is the amen, the faithful one of God's promises, who fulfills them all. And he is the, the trustworthy and true witness, speaking God's word right into the middle of our circumstances, no matter how difficult they are between our beginning and our end. We have a credo, the passionate life, I trust Jesus, but there's also a process. There's also a three-step dynamic, the sort of inverse of this process of uh, being rich and thinking that I prosper because of myself and therefore that I need nothing. We'll look at that process. Jesus gives it to us in three images. I say these letters are sort of the epistles of the mixed metaphor. There are all kinds of rich images in here. But it's as easy as opening a door as stepping out of our self-sufficiency into the care of Jesus Christ. So these three images. The first one is water. Jesus says, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. This is a description of water, but it's a metaphor for what? Is it the emotional energy that Jesus wants us to bring? I think not. If Jesus were calling us to be emotionally hot... Why would he also be calling us to be emotionally cold? Because he says, I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold. It seems strange that he would wish that we would be cold if this were a reflection of the emotional state. And, and if our faith is about our emotions, then it's described subjectively and not objectively. But the follower of Jesus Christ knows that the goal is not to feel something about who God is. The goal is to perceive by faith who Jesus Christ is and to stand on him by faith, the objective reality. We come to worship together. Our uh, purpose is not to generate some emotional experience. Our purpose is to apprehend again who Jesus Christ is for us. No, he's not speaking about our emotional temperature when he calls us to be passion like water. He's speaking us. He's inviting us to this, to be free to live authentically. And that's our first principle. The passionate life is the life lived authentically before him. A little bit of background on Laodicea. It's set in the Lycus Valley. 
And there are two other cities there. There's Hierapolis and there's Colossae. Hierapolis is a city that had a wealth of hot water. It had a hot spring there. And from across the valley at Laodicea, you could actually see the cliffs. And I understand you can still see today these white calcified cliffs. It's a mile long. It's 300 feet high. Pools of steaming water percolating and spilling down into the valley. Hot water, healing water. And in Colossae, they had cold water. They had fresh water to refresh the traveler and to renew the spirit. Well, Laodicea, poor Laodicea, has no uh, good water supply of its own. So it's got to import water from these two cities. You can see the pipeline that was six miles long to Colossae, Colossae today bringing this water. And, of course, if you lived in Laodicea, you'd know that by the time the hot water got to you, it was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. By the time the cold water got to you, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. And so you can just imagine that image of spitting it out. It's not doing what I need it to do. Laodicea had a great temptation to want to be one of these other two cities. Could I have hot water? Could I have cold water? And friends, you and I are constantly faced with a temptation to be somebody that we're not. Jesus says, I wish that you were who I made you to be, hot or cold. I don't want you to be a cold person who reaches out to try to get a little bit of hot from someone else, mix it in, because then you deprive both yourself and me of the richness of who you are as my child. I don't want you to be a hot person reaching for a little cold water. You and I tend to want to be like people around us. We compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths. We look at that coworker and we say, if I could only be like them, if I could only be as funny as she is, if I could only be as thin as he is. We're not comfortable with ourselves, but Jesus Christ calls us to be who we are. George Gershwin apparently went to meet Maurice Ravel. And he wanted to study under him. And Ravel said, why should you be a second-class Ravel when you can be a first-class Gershwin? Be who you are made to be. A few years ago, Ann and I uh, were decorating our home and we wanted to buy a light fixture, this black lacquer light fixture that hangs over the dining room table. We saw it at Crate and Barrel. Didn't want to pay Crate and Barrel prices, so we just thought, well, we'll look on eBay. Sure enough, we found that same thing uh, on eBay. And I bought it, and when the shipment came, we opened it up and looked at it and thought, that's beautiful. And then we looked closer and we realized, that's not from Crate and Barrel. We had bought a knockoff from who knows where. And you could tell if you look closely enough. And it hangs. We couldn't return it, so it hangs. You know, five years later, our new owner is probably enjoying this uh, crate and barrel. But it's fake. It's not what it's supposed to be. Do we want to live fake lives? The only way we can live authentically is to live as the one whom Jesus Christ uh, made us to be. During the Super Bowl, you may have caught this ad that caught my eye. It's for a car called Venza. And the copy goes something like this. You've been influenced by many, but defined by none. You know, introducing a new car, it exemplifies all of you. So ask yourself, are you Venza? <laughs> and you sit there and you, you scratch your head and you go, am I Venza? You know, <laughs> maybe I am. And you go, no, I could never be Venza. <laughs> right? Well, that ad is not addressing the problem of transportation for us. Right? It's addressing the problem of identity, that dissatisfaction that we all have with who we are. And we're hoping to improve by a little bit of something or someone else. 
The good news is that we don't have to be someone we're not. We don't have to pretend that we are rich like the Laodiceans. We can affirm boldly we are poor because Jesus Christ is rich. It's in the freedom of his grace where he says, I, I, I know that discomfort that you feel with yourself, that alienation, but I have swallowed it up in my grace. And now you are free to be just exactly who you are. You get the character, the, the moral character of Jesus Christ with the personality of who he has made you to be. We are poor and free to admit it. The water reminds us that we're free to live authentically. The second image is the throne. And the throne reminds us that we are free to live boldly. Free to live boldly. There were several industries that were well known in Laodicea. Uh, Banking industry, very famous for all the gold that they had there. Uh, They had a textile industry that had a unique process with a black wool it had a kind of a sheen to it and it was sought widely. And then finally, there was a medical school, a medicine, a Phrygian powder that uh, was a balm uh, to the eyes. And, and these were wonderful industries and valuable, and even their wealth was a good thing. But what had become unfortunate is that they had seen this wealth as an indication that they are the ones who secure themselves against adversity. Hard to believe today when you think about banking uh, in, in this year, in the earthquake of AD 60, Tacitus wrote, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. That was her pride, to be utterly self-sufficient, to build a, a high wall against risk and a bank on the wealth of my own resources. I've told you before that Revelation is an unveiling, and there are three central images through this whole book. Now, even moving past these letters, as we read on in Revelation, we'll find three images. One is the beast, and the beast represents the political and military power of Rome, its forcefulness. The other is the harlot of Babylon, which represents the economic strength of Rome. But there's a third image, and Jesus introduces it here as we face this transition, this seam out of the first seven letters and into the rest of the book, and that's the image of a throne. Again and again, we're going to see all of life's history is played out beneath the throne. And so there's this going back to earth, back to the throne, back to earth, back to the throne. The throne reminds us who is ultimately in control. It may not look like it on earth, but... Jesus affirms that he sits on his throne and he rules even in the midst of the melee of our own uh, chaos. Jesus invites us to his throne. Look at verse 20. He says, if you come in, if you, excuse me, open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. And then 21, I will give you a place on my throne just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So so Jesus says, you know, during my ministry, as I lived on on the earth, I looked forward to sitting on my father's throne. And and now I give you that same hope that you will be sitting on my throne. The throne doesn't mean that we will not suffer. Jesus knew that moving towards his throne was a process 
of living boldly through suffering. Hebrews 12.2 says, Look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, the throne, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. As I say, there are many rich images of this throne throughout Revelation. Let me just read one of them. I want you to picture yourself there, the glory of that moment. Revelation 7 says this, There was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then Jesus looks out over this crowd, face down, and he sees you. And he says, you, I want you to come and sit with me on my throne. Right in the middle of all of that glory and celebration. Sit with me. Wow. If that weren't right here in this Scripture, it would be heretical to think that we would sit on the throne where Jesus receives such acclaim. But that's what he's saying. I want you to sit with me on my throne. This is nothing other than what the Apostle Paul had written in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead, but Jesus Christ has made you alive with him. He has raised you with him, and then he has seated you with him in the heavenly places. Notice Paul. He even uses the past tense. If you take this word seriously, you right now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, are seated with him in a very, very safe place. That place where all control, that place of all rule, of all authority. I don't know if you've seen the movie Spaceballs. I don't tell you to run out and rent it if you haven't. (laughs) There's a scene in that movie that I've always enjoyed. And it's a spoof on Star Wars, or Star Trek, maybe both of them. And the spaceship is pursuing uh, some other spaceship. And they lose the trail. And they're totally, all the leads are cold. And they think, what are we going to do? Well, they get the idea. I know what we'll do. We'll go to Blockbuster and we'll rent the video Spaceballs. And they do, so they run out, they rent the video, they bring it back, and they put it in their big you know, console, and they turn to the part where they are right now at the moment, they look at each other, they look at the video, they're doing the same thing the video's doing, then they fast forward past that place to find where the spaceship is. And that's where they go. And I kind of think that's what Jesus Christ is doing for the church in Laodicea. He's saying, what I want to do is I want to fast forward to the future. I want you to see how it ends. And see if that doesn't affect the way you live differently today. Could you live with boldness if you knew how it ended? Could you? I have a theory about nostalgia. Have you ever noticed that when you think back over your life, you look at times that were maybe fraught with anxiety, 
with kind of a warmth. And you think, what a great time. You know, that time when we lived in that one-bedroom apartment and we weren't sure if we were going to get work and how to pay the bills and uh, there was that diagnosis. And, and you look back now and you go, that was a great time. <laughs> well, it, it felt horrible at the time. My theory about this is that nostalgia is feeling good about something because you know it works out okay. You can look back at it without the anxiety and you just see the happiness and the joy that's there. So I think Jesus wants to pull back all the anxiety. He says, I want you to see where you are today from the future. I want you to look back on it and know that it all works out okay. And, and, and live then without the anxiety and just the joy, just the happiness of that. This passionate living It's living that allows us to live boldly, defying our circumstances, not protecting ourselves against them, uh, embracing Jesus Christ as he moves with us towards this throne. If we learn that the water that we are poor, we learn here at the throne that Jesus has conquered. Jesus has conquered and that we are free to live boldly. Finally, there's a third image, and that is of a table. Because for now, the throne is veiled. And we can't see all of its glory. And we can't live with all of its control. And we need to stop. Some of us need to resign as CEO of the universe. We live right now in a time where we don't have control. And in a time of trouble and suffering and toil. And for that time, Jesus gives us this third image, a table. He says, if you open the door, I want to come in. I want to eat with you. And you with me. Think back on the table of your youth. The table is a family image. It's a place where we learn the family stories. We hear about who we are, our identity. We see the love and the care that is offered as we share the making of a meal together and eat together, taking time for each other. Sometimes we see the events of the world in light of that care and love as we turn on the news. And we see troubling images, but we know from the vantage point of the fellowship of the table, our prayers will be answered. We share the work of the family. How was your day? And what are you hoping for tomorrow? And so Jesus says, I want you to come at the table. I will come into you and I will eat with you. The table is that place where we learn to trust Jesus Christ. We learn to trust his word. It's not a place where we're freed from suffering. It's a place where suffering becomes productive in our lives. Jesus shared a table with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He reminded them that just as he has served them, so they are called to serve the world around them, wash their feet. And then he demonstrated his greatest act of service as he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there alone, he claimed his identity as a a son before his father. He said, Father, I am your son. Let this cup pass. Notice the table imagery. (laughs) Not pass the cup to me. Jesus didn't seek suffering. He said, can it pass away from me? But not my will, but yours. Jesus knew the power of owning his sonship and trusting his father. And he learned that through suffering. Even Jesus had to learn Uh, how to trust God through suffering. Uh, Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And Paul says this to us again in Romans. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. That's the throne. But not only that, we also boast in our sufferings. 
That's the table. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character uh, produces hope. That's what Jesus means when he says to the Laodiceans, you got your gold, but I'll tell you the gold you want to ask for from me is not the gold of self-sufficiency. It's the gold of relationship. It's how you get to know me. That's the gold that's refined by fire in the forge of suffering. What we walk away with, what's really valuable, it's not wealth, it's not protection from adversity, it's knowing the one at the table. Knowing how to trust him. Well, Laodicea sits uh, on four trade routes, it's four gates facing outward, and they have a new gate at the time Jesus writes, uh, uh, gives this message to John. It's a, a triple-arched gate that was built under Domitian from 81 to 96. And so Jesus plays on this when he says, I am standing at the door or at the gate knocking. I'm that close to you. You have fenced me out with your self-protective, self-sufficient attitude. But all you need to do is open. Will you open the door? Jesus had just said to the church in Philadelphia, I am the one who opens doors that no one can close. I am the one who closes doors that no one can open. But this door, he will not open. He will not do it. This is the door of our love. And he grants us the dignity of opening it for him to say, I will live in loving relationship with you. I will be trained by your discipline as a child is trained by a parent. I will learn to trust in you, the faithful and true witness. So if the defensive credo is, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. The, the passionate credo is, I am poor. Jesus has conquered. I trust Jesus. Friends, passion is not an energy. It's not an emotion. It's a dedication. The word passion means jealousy. Let nothing come between you and Jesus. Be jealous of that relationship. I close with another knocking from the Song of Solomon, where we hear its echoes in this text. I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spice. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Jesus, you knock for us this morning. We confess before you that we have tried to live out of our own resources we have tried to measure our success in life by our own self-sufficiency. May we give that up. Give us help to open this door and admit you to come and eat with us. Thank you that you love us more than we can ever imagine. We love you as well. Grant to us the devotion that will make us passionate people in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.
upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.